Well, good evening. My name is Linnea Gibbs, and today I'll be doing our scripture reading. If you would like to um, follow along with your Bible or use the screens to either side, I'll be reading Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 30 from the New American Standard Bible. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him, because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, because of this answer, go, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. The word of the Lord. Good evening. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. Happy Palm Sunday to uh, all of you. We've been looking at miracles in the book of Mark. And today being Palm Sunday, I'd like us to look at Mark 7. And Mark 7, the whole chapter actually, deals with the problem of what it means to be a human being. And really the problem with being a human being is a problem about the human being's heart. We have a problem and it's a heart problem. The major Palm Sunday theme that most preachers will have talked about today is about the human proclivity to love and to see and attach to the outer rather than the inner. 
We love the things that are on the outside, the things that are visible, the things that are measurable and tangible. And so when the Christ came, the people immediately thought about their external circumstances, the structure of their society, the direction that money flowed. This is what the people readily took to as the role of the Messiah to correct societal ills. Now, Jesus' mission, on the other hand, was inner. It was about the heart. Not because Jesus doesn't value the outer. Of course, he cares about societal justice. Of course, he cares about the elimination of oppression. Of course, he does. But he always aimed for the inner because if you aimed for the outer, you eventually get nothing. But if you aim for the inner, you get both the inner and the outer. Because as it is, the outer is ultimately, over time, and always something that is meant to and does emanate from the inner. Do you know this? That the eternal, the real, the lasting is an outward expression of inward realities. And if the inner isn't there, then the outer falls away, it deteriorates, it disappears. It's done away with. So we have passages that talk about this. Oh, excuse me. Uh, Proverbs 4. Everything in life flows from the heart. 1 Samuel. God looks at the heart. While man looks at the outward appearance of things, God is always looking at the heart. Matthew 12. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Deuteronomy 4, all that you see and hear and experience always are filtered, Deuteronomy 4 says, from the heart, which goes on to influence generation after generation after generation. If you want to bless your children, Deuteronomy 4 says, be attentive to the matters of your own heart. Um, I really like how Ravi Zacharias puts this. He's an apologist and Christian speaker and author. And he says, and I've said this before, he says the intent of the heart always defines the content of life. So why you do something actually is going to penetrate reality more than what you do. You can do loving things, but if you don't have love in your heart, eventually what penetrates isn't love. Reality is formed out of the intent of your hearts. It's not what you say. It's not even what you do. It's not what you build, but it's really the intent of your heart that matters most. Uh, I've been thinking about this as a parent and the lesson I'm learning these days about the heart is there are no number of rules, no amount of rules that we can make for our household that can outmaneuver a bad attitude. I can only modify behavior so much, but the heart will scheme what it wants. And it's impossible to chase down a bad attitude with rules. How many of you know this? 
that society in society, there's no amount of legislation that can overcome a selfish heart. The best that, for, for example, behavior economists have to offer us as a way to contain society is to use incentives. That's it. It's outside hopefully affecting behavior, but it can't get at the heart. In fact, laws are meant to legislate against hate, but it can't mandate love. And this is a real conundrum in our world because we have this bent towards the external, but the external are just the symptoms. The real problem with what it means to be a human being lies in the inside, on the inside. It's in our hearts. And we really struggle with knowing how to change the human heart. What can you do to change another person's heart? I love this saying, you can choose to be loving, but you can't choose who you love. The heart wants what it wants. How do you change your heart? What do you do if you just want something, but you're not supposed to want it? What of the human heart? And uh, here in chapter 7, we see the Pharisees and the scribes, they missed the entire point of what the Old Testament regulations about cleanliness were about. Jesus says in verse seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 8, Neglecting the commandment of, heart, of, of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Verse 9, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. In other words, they focused on the external things, but they missed the point that God was trying to make through all of the rules and laws and regulations, which is God really cares about your heart that your heart is clean, that your heart is pure, that your heart is right. He cares about your thoughts and your motives and the motives underneath the motives. This is what God is always looking at. And as a way to teach humanity this truth about what matters to God, God created all these laws and regulations for us and then we just forgot all about the heart and just focused on the external. Question for us, if you could wave a magic wand and change everything external, like our whole society that's visible can be changed. Everything looks proper. Everybody is well-fed. Everybody's well-clothed. There is sort of the appearance of perfect on the outside. But you couldn't change their hearts. That's the one thing you couldn't touch with your wand. How long would that society last? How long would that society stay pretty? Would it help even? What happens if you have all the resources in the world and you give all of the resources to one child? Does it make them better? Does it build character? Does it teach love? The problem is with the human heart. If you change nothing on the outside, but all hearts were changed, what would happen to the outer? What if every single person's heart was made soft and loving 
and kind and patient and other-centered and generous? Would our society change? If you had a magic wand and God said, you can wave it once and only once, and either you can change everything on the outside or you can change every single human being's heart, what would you choose? I think it'd be the heart. Because if you aim for the heart, you get everything. But if you aim just for the outside, eventually you get nothing. And so Jesus comes riding on a donkey. Because it's not about the externals, right? And he aimed for the heart. And the people were disappointed. Because they were focused on the outside. We have two points I want us to think about today. The first is powerless. The second is powerless. That's pretty clever, folks. <laughs> Let's start with powerless. Verse 14 to 16. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 17 to 19. Then he, said to the, then he left the crowd and entered the house. His disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart? And the heart is what defines the man. Right? It's the intent, not the content. But into his stomach and is eliminated, thus he declared all foods clean. And then the rest, 22, 23. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride and foolishness, all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. I'm not sure he could have said it any clearer than this. I want you to notice first the emotional intensity of Christ. Encounter after encounter, miracle after miracle, They still don't get it. We still have religion, power, systems, people, thinking, laws, regulations, everything that we consider society, they're missing the problem altogether. The problem is not on the outside. Religion addresses behavior on the outside. Power is aimed at beautifying and modifying and controlling the outside. The systems of this world are external by definition. People are always thinking about the outside. Our thinking, the laws, the regulations, <clears throat> we miss that the problem, the human problem is really within. And Jesus is frustrated. Listen to me, he says, all of you, and understand. Please, listen. There is nothing outside the man 
which can defile him. But it's the things which proceed out of the man from the heart that defile the man and in turn defile all of society. And then he asks again, are you so lacking in understanding? Are you so dense? Do you not understand? This is some emotionally intense language. He's frustrated. He's upset. He's angry. He's been trying to convey this truth, that the problem with humanity is within. And he's finally here to name the problem. And the problem is the problem of the human heart. And then we have powerless. That we are powerless to address the problem, that is the human heart. And then Jesus says the key to addressing the human heart is to be powerless. I really am excited to share this next uh, and second point with you. Uh, Let's read verse 24 to verse 30 together. He got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And there, when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it yet, yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon from where? From out of her daughter. Okay, now remember, Jesus has just taught about very vehemently, very explicitly about the heart. And this next miracle that Mark juxtaposes to that teaching is about the teaching. Okay, there's a demon inside of the daughter. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, Because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter, and going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. Now, how does Jesus solve the problem of the human heart, as illustrated in this story of this healing of this little girl who was demon-possessed? There's this demon inside of her, okay, inside of her heart. That's the point of the story that Mark, that's the connection Mark is making with Jesus' teaching. Did you catch it? It's in verse 29. That's the key verse. And he said to her, because of this answer, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And the obvious question I want us to ask is, what's so special about her answer? So we asked the same question we asked earlier. If everything on the outside of this girl's life was changed, like she got a brand new house, brand new house, and it's not a thatched roof. It was a real clay roof, and there's never going to be rain coming through this roof. With real walls and a brand new bed, brand new sheets, all of the bread and fish you could ever hope to eat. What if she had all the toys she could ever want to play with? She even had all the friends she could ever want. And she was just magically turned into the most beautiful little girl. And she had perfect behavior. She always said please and thank you. 
Every single thing that you would deem as external about this girl and her life was changed. But she had to live with the demon inside of her. Has anything changed? What's the condition of her life? How's she doing? How's her mama feeling about her daughter? Is her mama happy because she's got all these friends and new clothes and new toys and new house? Is she happy? Is mom happy? No, because what's the problem? The main problem that's affecting and infecting, pervading everything else, is the demon that's inside of her. That's her problem. And in fact, if you compare, that's her only problem. So if everything was changed but the demon remained, where's the good news? There is no good news for the girl. And we're talking about the girl, but now we can flip this onto us. What if everything that you could ever want was given to you? What if your mortgage was paid off? What if you found yourself to be the perfect spouse and have the perfect spouse? What if you were beautiful? What if your body was perfect just the way you and society together deem it so? Every single measurement, just so. And your house was just beautiful. And you had no bills to pay ever. Your refrigerator is stocked with all the food you could ever want, flown in from around the world. And every morning you woke up and makeup was already done for you. Perfect cup of coffee placed in your hand. Piping hot. What if you never got sick? What if you were germ-proof? What if the biggest problem when somebody else is doing your laundry is all this money is just spilling out of your pockets? But your heart was rotten to the core. You're selfish. And all you ever saw, no matter what you were looking at, was your big, ugly face. That's all you saw. Just your face. It was all about you all the time. And you cared for no one. And you were crude. You were impatient. And you were always in a mood. How would your life be? Is it possible to possess everything but still be possessed maybe by a demon even? And I think that's the story. That's the point that Mark is trying to make. And what's so special about this mom's answer is that she understood that what was wrong with her daughter was not everything on the outside. It's not that she wanted her daughter to have everything. It's that she saw that her daughter was broken on the inside. And the way she was asking about it, you know, the woman didn't value what or how much. She didn't care if she was entitled to the bread or not. You know, the way they used to eat, it was the father, the male, who ate the bread first. And when he had leftovers, the mom got some. And when mom was done, then the children got some. And then sometimes when the children ate, because of 
they were children, food would fall off the table onto the, onto the um, floor, and that's when the dogs would eat. There's a pecking order to this. And she doesn't care what place in the pecking order she's in. And she doesn't care how much she's getting. She'll take any leftover. She didn't care. She didn't value what or how much, but she only valued that she received anything and she cared most of all from whom she received it. She just wanted to be near the table. That's all. She just wanted to be called to the house, to the room. And that was enough for her. What was of utmost import to her? By her answer, she demonstrated this very important trait, humility. She said, it doesn't matter who I am. It doesn't matter what I'm entitled to. It only matters that you're willing to share what you're going to waste anyway. It's like you came here for the Jews, but some of the Jews are rejecting you anyway. There, surely there must be some leftover for a Syrophoenician woman like me. If only you would just do something, anything, any one little thing, my daughter will be well on the inside. I'm not going to even ask about the outside, but just a little word from you. And Jesus loved this answer because she answered from the right place in her heart. And by this answer, her daughter was cured in her heart. If she had responded from a place of pride, how might her response have been different? She might have taken offense she might have become defensive. She might have felt insulted. Maybe she would have felt snuffed. Maybe she would have felt rejected. But no, she was grateful because she was humble. That's powerless. I want to introduce a concept here that I've been sort of just voraciously trying to understand. And I had, I had read about this concept uh, over a decade ago, and I just completely forgot about it. And I just happened to revisit it recently. And it's exactly what Jesus is teaching here. And I want to introduce you to this concept called straight-line power. Straight-line power is something that allows you to just exercise your external power. You have money, you use it. It's within arm's reach, you grab for it. It's what most of us use most of the time. You know, it's called straight line power. And the truth we see here that Jesus is beginning to teach about how he addresses the problem of the human heart is that straight line power, as powerful and as convenient as it is, cannot get at the human heart. It cannot change the human heart. And I want to introduce another term that's sort of counter to straight line power. It's what Martin Luther, the guy that started the Reformation for the Protestants, he calls God's power left-handed power. Sort of his weaker hand. It's not his favorite hand. You know, he's got his right arm by which he can destroy the world. But then instead of using his right arm to try to change us or modify us or control us or oppress us or punish, punish us, he uses his weaker hand, his left hand, Luther says. He calls it God's left-handed power. 
It's slightly weaker looking power. And it's power that often doesn't even look like power at all. And what does left-handed power look like? It looks like humility. It's not that it's powerless, but it's powerless, slightly less. You know, as a friend or a parent or even a boss, you can use direct, straight-line power, can't you? But if you do, you can't change their heart. You don't get at their heart. Maybe you're stronger and you can press somebody down, but it doesn't change their heart. Maybe you have money and you can buy their services for a time. You can afford an electrician or a plumber or a mechanic, but you can't change their heart. Uh, the author that really kind of articulated this really well, he's an um, Episcopalian uh, priest. He died about three years ago. I think it was October uh, three years ago, 2013, that he died. Uh, and I, I remember when I first read him, I related to him because he grew up in Jackson Heights, Queens. I grew up in Flushing, Queens. And uh, he grew up in uh, Queens his whole life, and he uh, did most of his ministry work in Long Island, which Queens is connected to. And I first read him uh, a couple of decades ago, actually, in seminary. But uh, three years ago when he passed, Christianity Today, he, uh, they wrote a um, sort of a tribute article on uh, Robert Capon, and I want to read you a little blurb of what uh, they wrote about him because he was such a failure as a pastor, okay? Uh, it says this, But after 27 years of marriage and six children, Capon divorced his first wife. As it turned out, he wrote, this is Capon describing himself, there were a lot of departments in which I was not a success, not to mention several in which I was and still am a failure, I dedicated a great deal of time and effort to my children's religious formation, only to find them now mostly uninterested and non-practicing. The failure of his first marriage and subsequent remarriage ended Capon's career as a dean of, seminary, of a seminary and priest of a church. He was not a life of triumphant goodness or heroic efforts, but of dumb luck and forgiveness, as he described himself. This only underscored his gratitude for God's grace and mercy. And I just wanted to read this to you because I wanted you to uh, have a little context to the kind of person that was writing uh, uh, this teaching about left-handed power versus uh, straight-line power. And uh, just to make it real for you, if I had a failed marriage and if I had a second failed marriage, and none of my six children uh, were believers at all, would you still let me be your pastor? <laughs> would you like to still listen to a sermon from him? So that's him, okay? And uh, he wrote three books, Kingdom, Grace, and Judgment, and they combined these three books. And I want to read you a quote from um, this combined book that I think is really powerful. He says this, Direct straight-line intervening power does, of course, have many uses. With it, you can lift the spaghetti from the plate to your mouth, wipe the sauce off your slacks, carry them to the dry cleaners, and perhaps even make enough money to ransom them back. Indeed, straight-line power, use the force you need to get the result you want, 
is responsible for almost everything that happens in the world. And the beauty of it is, it works. From removing the dust with a cloth to removing your enemy with a 45, it achieves its ends in sensible, effective, easily understood ways. Unfortunately, it has a whopping limitation. If you take the view that one of the chief objects in life is to remain in loving relationships with other people, straight-line power becomes useless. Oh, admittedly, you can snatch your baby boy away from the edge of a cliff and not have a broken relationship on your hands, but just try interfering with his plans for the season when he is 20 and see what happens. Suppose he makes unauthorized use of your car and you use a little straight-line verbal power to scare him out of doing it again, well and good. But suppose further that he does it again anyway, and again, and again, and again. What do you do next if you are committed to straight-line power? You raise your voice a little more nastily each time so you can't shout any louder. And then you beat him if you are stronger than he is until you can't beat any harder. Then you chain him to a radiator. But you see the point? At some very early crux in that difficult personal relationship, the whole thing will be destroyed unless you, who on any reasonable view should be allowed to use straight-line power, simply refuse to use it. Unless, in other words, you decide that instead of dishing out justifiable pain and punishment, you are willing, quite foolishly, to take a beating yourself. But such a paradoxical exercise of power, please note, is 180 degrees away from the straight-line variety. It is to introduce a phrase from Luther, left-handed power. Left-handed power is precisely paradoxical power, power that looks to all the world like weakness, intervention that seems indistinguishable from non-intervention. The work of Jesus in his incarnation, life, passion, death, and resurrection, and ascension makes no worldly sense at all. The portrait the Gospels paint is that of a lifeguard who leaps into the surf, swims to the drowning girl, and then instead of doing a cross-chest carry, he drowns with her, revives three days later, and walks off the beach with assurances that everything, including the apparently still-dead girl, is hunky-dory. You do not like that. Neither do I. Just think about this. There's a girl drowning. I go to save her. I say, I got this. And then I just drown. And she just drowns. And we both are just dead. It doesn't make any sense. It's not even funny. It's just shocking. And he says that's often what left-handed power looks like to the world because the world is focused on externals. The world doesn't understand the agenda of God that is to aim at the heart. And then you ask, how does swimming out 30 yards and then drowning with the girl aim at the heart or aim at anything at all? It doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? It's not sensible visually, rationally, it doesn't make any sense. So he says, you do not like that, neither do I. The often repeated question that I get as a pastor 
is some version of, if God is good and all-powerful, why doesn't he just blank? Fill in the blank. Why doesn't he just what? What do you want God to do? What should God do? If God is all-loving and all-powerful, what would you have God do? You play God for a minute. What do you want God to do? What should he do? He's going to wave his magic wand because he invented magic wands. What should he do? The answer is, the answer is, straight-line power cannot do what only left-handed power can do, which is to exercise the demon that is within, the demon inside the heart. And this is a limitation of straight-line power. And if you don't understand why God is limited by straight-line power, at least understand your own limitation with straight-line power. If you were to only use straight-line power, could you touch the heart of your child? See, if you want to transform a human heart, words like sacrifice and patience and love and trust, these softer, weaker words start coming floating to the surface because until you die for me I don't trust you if I think for a moment that you might have your self-interest before me I can't trust you because that means you're not looking out for me ultimately and I have to then look out for myself because somebody has to but if you were to put me in front of you that power looks very different. It doesn't look so straight. It doesn't look so right-handed anymore. You notice, in almost every miracle that Jesus performs, not just in Mark, but in the Gospels, there's always this qualifier that we call faith. Why does Jesus teach that demons can only come out through fasting and prayer? Why is this this Jesus' suggestion for how to exercise really tough demons? Because fasting and prayer isn't straight-line power, is it? It's more left-handed. Instead of attacking the demon head-on, in Jesus' name, you, get out! The demon's like, no. And then what do you do? Instead of fighting the demon harder, you get down on your knees and you close your eyes and you fold your hands and you stop eating? Really? That makes no sense. And Jesus says, this kind can only come out through fasting and prayer, meaning it has to be left-handed power. Why does it require our faith? Why doesn't Jesus just do miracles? He says, no, it has to come softer than that. It has to be filtered through humility through something we call faith. Our faith matters because our faith is left-handed and it's the only thing that gets at the heart. Straight-line power cannot, cannot get at the heart. It's power plus faith. And so Jesus says to the woman, Because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter and going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. 
because she showed humility. It's the straight line power of God filtered through her humility, made soft, made weak through her faith. Now, you may not understand this on a divine level, but at least you can appreciate it on a human level. I'll give you one really, really simple application point. When you're in a difficult situation where straight line power isn't working anymore, whether you're at work or at home or with a friend, simply ask the question, what does humility look like in this situation? Ask the question, what does left-handed power look like in this situation? And it's not going to make sense, especially the tough ones. The tougher it is, the more you have to fast and pray, the more left-handed you have to be. I want us to conclude here. Consider all your problems. Consider all the problems of our world. All the divine power in the heavens are at the disposal of one who is willing to be humble, one who is willing to have faith, that is to trust in a power that is not of themselves. If you are willing to be weak, then all of God's strength is available to you is the teaching of Jesus in Mark chapter 7. Because that's the power that gets at the human heart. We conclude with this. One more quote from another book of Capon's called Between Noon and Three. He says this, Until our fatal love affair with the law is over, until finally and for good our lifelong certainty that someone is keeping score has run out of steam and collapsed. Morality helps most when it has the least to object to. If it is a guide at all, it is a guide to perfecting one's virtues, not the reform of one's vices. For those in the front lines of their faults, morality is just a lovely, cruel vision of a home they cannot get to. The law only makes sin exceedingly sinful and never saved anyone who really needed help. And what Capon is saying here in context is if you want to change the world, it's going to require your dying. You're going to have to swim out 30 yards to some drowning girl. And instead of looking like the hero, you're going to have to drown with her. And somehow in that drowning together, the power of Christ is released and the demon is exorcised and the human heart is changed. That's the paradox of the gospel. That's the paradox of the cross. And that's the paradox that those waving palm branches in Jerusalem could not grasp on Palm Sunday. How can he come to die? Why would God come to die because he was aiming for our hearts. The law is straight line power. Incarnation, death, resurrection, indwelling of the Holy Spirit is left-handed. And to get at the heart, to get at your heart, to get at their hearts, the power that you need is patient, it is kind, does not envy, does not boast, it is not proud, does not dishonor, is not self-seeking, is not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs, 
does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres, it never fails. Where will you get such a power unless you are willing to be weak? Would you bow your heads with me? God, I think the, the prayer is uh, for us to be able to come to a point of understanding and appreciation for just how powerless sometimes straight-line power can be and how powerful left-handed power can be, how effective it can be in changing the human heart. And I pray that with our left hands and with our right hands, we will love the world, love all those around us, our family members and our friends. Show us how to love and how to be loved today. In Jesus' name, amen.